verses 13 through 15, Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Amen. Our Father, we humbly come before you this day that you have given to us to worship you and to assemble together these people that you have saved, these sinners that you have saved out of the earth and from the earth, Lord. And yet uh, we see here the depths and the measure that you have spanned to save us. Uh, I pray that we would re remark on them in our minds, that we would be mindful of them, but I pray that this would go to the depths of our soul to change us, to remind us of what was given, the cost of our salvation and the glory of our Savior in offering himself up once for all time, a sacrifice for sin. Lord, this is incredible that we would glory in the death of somebody, but we know that we do that because he rose again and that he ascended and that he is seated at your right hand and he reigns even there. And every, every day and every moment he is making intercession for us still by his righteousness and by his sacrifice. Thank you for these truths. I pray that you would impart them to us. I pray that if there's an unbelieving heart here, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we would glorify you together. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a very um, quick, organize, quickly organized sermon for me. The first half of the week and actually previous weeks I had been intending to continue uh, preaching through Romans chapter 12, especially focusing on verse 2 in Romans 12. But for two to three years, every time we come to the Lord's table, uh, every time that I'm preparing to come to the Lord's table, I've, I've had it in my mind to break away from our normal pattern of sermons and do something of a series that brings us to this day and to this table that God has prepared for us, uh, and, and especially with the intention behind it to bring Christ before you throughout the whole of the service. That is not a wasted worship service, that Christ himself is laid out before us, is good for us. And so it's my intention for at least 10 weeks this year once a month for 10 months that we work through the servant psalm, this servant, servant what's called a servant psalm, especially this one that we find in Isaiah 52, chap, chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53, verse 12. 
this text might be, and I don't like to say this really, this might be the most important prophecy ever given in the Old Testament, at least in one sense. And I think that Thomas, the Puritan Thomas Manton said it very well. He said, we may rather call this prophecy a gospel than a prophecy. It contains so ample and clear a discovery of Jesus the Messiah that one would rather account it historical than prophetical. Other prophecies are explained by history, the history of Christ in the New Testament. But this prophecy explains the history. What we're going to look at today happened 2,700 years ago, meaning the writing took place 700 years before Christ came to earth. And here, this Puritan said, this reads more like a history, more like a gospel, a record of Christ's coming, than a prophecy that would have come 700 years before it. But in fact, it, this vision, this servant psalm, and we'll look into what I mean by servant psalm, this one actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13, with this attention grabbing word, behold. And the next two words are significant, my servant. And this signifies that this is the fourth in a series of what are called servant psalms, the first of which is found in Isaiah chapter 42. The identity of the servant of the Lord in all of these psalms seems somewhat to vary, at least in some of them. Now, it sometimes seems to refer to Israel, but in its fullest identity, identity, this servant regarded in these psalms can only, in the final analysis and in its fullest regard, mean and refer to Christ himself. Sometimes even when Israel is explicitly called the servant or my servant, as in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3, he says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It becomes evident that much more is meant by Israel than merely the nation. Because he says in verse 5, speaking to the same servant, that this Israel is to bring Jacob back. Israel, this Israel is to bring Jacob. Well, Jacob is a synonym for the people of God, the covenant people of God. Back to Yahweh he is to bring him back. And then in verse 6 and 7 it says this of the servant, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. That is, it's just too little. For you to bring Jacob back to me is just too little. It reminds me of what God said to Gideon. If you go out with these many soldiers, up to 10,000, it's just too much. People are going to think that you did it. I don't want anyone thinking you did it. Right? God is very concerned in our salvation that nobody knows or thinks that, that we've done it. And so this is that same language here. It's too little a thing for you just to bring back the tribes of Jacob to me, the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That language might sound familiar. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord. 
the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise and princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He's speaking of the servant here. And we know that this speaks especially of Jesus. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, while Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is extolling God and praising God prophetically and glorifying God, he says that this one to be born of Mary will be a light for the Gentiles, a revelation for the Gentiles, and a glory to your people Israel. He quotes this servant psalm as being fulfilled in Jesus. And yet again in chapter 50 in Isaiah, the third servant psalm, regards, among many other things, a little bit of the information that we find in the New Testament regarding Christ's sufferings under the Roman soldiers, especially. In verse 6 in that servant psalm, he says this, speaking of the servant, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is speaking of Christ, of course. But how would the servant of the Lord, as was said in chapter 49, become a light for the Gentiles and glory of Israel? And we don't find that answer until we come to chapter 52. Verse 10 of chapter 52 of Isaiah says this, Yahweh has bared his arm. And you can think of it as if you have long sleeves and somebody rolling up their sleeves. That was a sign that you're about to go to work. God is going to go to work here before the eyes of all the nations, and his arm is his strength, and all the ends of the earth shall see, what? The salvation of God. All the nations, the ends of the earth, shall see the salvation of God. And so the final servant psalm reveals how that salvation comes to pass through our Lord Jesus Christ. And most of us are familiar that the way in which the Lord accomplishes our salvation through his servant, this servant, is nothing short of astonishing. And so first this morning, consider the servant's threefold exaltation in verse 13. The servant's threefold exaltation Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Act wisely comes from the Hebrew word sakal, and it's translated various ways, prudently. But I think prudently and wisely get to what is behind those terms. That is, he acts in a way that is prosperous. It seems that the Prophecy has to do with the end result of what this servant's action will result in or will will bring. This servant's conduct is the point of the prophet. It is what leads to his exaltation that follows. And it's defined again in chapter 53, verse 10, which is sort of a encapsulation of the beginning part of the prophecy. In verse 10, it says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. His hand regards the servant's hand. So the beginning of the psalm expectantly leads to the threefold 
exaltation of the servant that follows it because what he has done is prosperous. And here's this threefold exaltation in the text. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now, some have explained this threefold exaltation in regarding the resurrection, the ascension, and the session, or the reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven of Christ. Now, we should think of those things when we think of the exaltation of Christ. We could also think of his return in power where he'll, he'll reign forever and ever. But, but these words, as the prophet has given them, are all parallel terms. They're all speaking to the same end. The exaltation of Christ and what I believe the, the apostle, I keep wanting to say, it is a gospel after all, right? Uh, the prophet is speaking of is in terms of the superlative. You know how we speak in the superlative degree in our language. He is the best, right? Good, better, and best, or she is the best. And, and this is a way that the prophet has already sp- spoken in a Hebraic form. There's a Hebrew instructor over here. So uh, I hope this is true. I've been told this is true all my life, so I'm believing it. Uh, uh, but, but this is a way of expressing the superlative degree in the Hebrew. It's this repetitive notion. And we see Jesus use this as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this. This is true, what I am saying to you. Now, do you remember where this form was used? In fact, it was used in Isaiah 6. Isaiah's very familiar vision of Yahweh, or Adonai, the Lord, high, seated on his throne, high and lifted up there in heaven. And the seraphim, these creatures that God has made seemingly for this purpose alone, cry out. And we find out in Revelation, this cry goes out all the time. Holy, holy, holy. To the superlative degree, God is holy. And here, to the superlative degree, in our text, this servant is exalted. That is, no one is exalted like him. Nobody is lifted up like him. It's the wonder of Scripture that the Apostle John declares that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. He says he saw the glory of Christ in this same context. John 12, 41, speaking, and and scholars, they, they don't know. Is he speaking about the context of Isaiah 52, 53, or is he speaking about the context of Isaiah 6? But both are exalted contexts. And and here's what he sees. He sees Jesus, according to John. That that what we know for sure is this exalted one, this superlative degree exalted one, or this one that John see or that Isaiah sees high and lifted up, both are the same exalted to the superlative degree figures. Isaiah sees them and he's speaking of the glory of Christ. But here is a servant. How can a servant be exalted? 
here's a servant of the Lord, and it's said that he would be exalted to this degree, incomparable degree, because he prospered in his ways. Well, how did he prosper in his ways? Well, we saw in verse 10, verse 50, chapter 53, that he did the Lord's will. <laughs> he prospered in the way of doing the Lord's will. But what did that look like? What did it look like that this servant did the Lord's will and so was exalted? The answer that I give to you is that it looked altogether inhuman. It didn't look very human at all. And, and that's a loaded term. It brings me to the second point. The astonishing way of the servant's prosperity. Verse 13. The way you and I usually think about success because of our familiar with, familiarity with the gospel is not necessarily natural to mankind. More natural is that we consider prosperity... Of the servant at this point, we'd think, wow, this exalted one, he must exceed powerfully in the world. He, he must be great in the world. He must be prosperous in the things that he does in the way that he is viewed by others in his wisdom and insight to make advancements maybe in politics or industry and in military might and education. Maybe he has ordered a civilization in a, a captivating or especially sound way. Today we might mean space exploration or natural conservation or technological advancement. This is a way of prosperity. This is a way of bettering our lives, right? This is a man who knows how to treat people with COVID. And he would, wouldn't he? You think about Christ on the earth, he'd know what to do. And none of those things have anything to do with his exaltation. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25 talks about the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of, of man. The way that we think about prosperity and the way that God thinks about it. We preach Christ crucified. Do you see, do you know we sung a song about glorying in the death of somebody? <laughs> that's, that's really strange. This, this is an instrument. This cross is the instrument of the most cruel form of execution ever devised. And here we have it hanging in a church. We wear it as jewelry. We preach Christ crucified and we glory in the Christ. Paul says, I only glory in the, Christ, the cross of Christ. And here he says, that preaching is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He's talking about the natural man. What do you mean you only preach the crucifixion of somebody? What do you mean that's your message of good news? What do you have for me? Don't you have some good advice on how I can better my investments and grow in my 401k? And what, what about the young people? Don't you want to tell them how they can go to college and get an education and succeed and maybe save the environment or give us something, right? Something of value, they're saying. 
No, we, we preach Christ crucified. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, to us, this is, this is exaltation, who have believed the gospel. Listen, this is what I want us to hear. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Indeed, this is what we find in verse 13. As many were astonished or appalled can be rendered at you. That is at the servant. And then it goes into sort of a breakup here. He's talking to the servant. Why were they appalled? What, what is this that follows? What are they astonished at? What are they looking at? What, when they look at the servant, this exalted one, what do you expect to see? And this is what we read. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The prophet is describing the servant from the perspective of the onlooker here. What he describes is nothing short of monstrous. This is what the language wants us to know. The idea of being marred behind hum- beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man regards altogether an inhuman disfiguration. The scholar Alec Motyer says it this way, those who saw him stepped by in horror, not only saying, is this the servant? But saying, is this human? That's what the words signify, that they're looking at this servant and they don't even put it together that he is a man. He is so disfigured before them. But remember the words. He shall be high, he shall be lifted up, he shall be exalted, and that doesn't look at all like prosperity as we would naturally speak of it. This, according to the wisdom of man, is opposite of prosperity. Instead of advancement for mankind, the servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the wisdom of God, according to this prophecy, which comes three, 700 years before Christ came into the world and fulfilled it, would prosper. He prospered in the will of the Lord in this way, by inhuman suffering, by inhumane suffering. And we know he suffered at the hands of mankind. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, speaking of the fair, to the Pharisees. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It hit me hard this week that when Jesus said these words, the only way this becomes true of you and me is that it first became true of him. He's not just teaching us a wisdom to live by. He's teaching us the pattern and the way that he would win our salvation for us. He did not come into the world, according to his words, to be served. That way, we would have thought that would be right, right? That's what everyone was expecting in Jerusalem. 
He comes healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. This is someone the world can follow. Put him up in Jerusalem, give him a king, give him a scepter. He will rule the world with a rod of iron. And everybody, when they die, would die in their sin. And would face a righteous and holy God. And so in the wisdom of God, the Son came, according to his own words, to become a servant. To lay his life down. To humble himself. To become obedient to the cross, to the death of the cross. To lay his life down a ransom. And by that ransom, to buy for himself sinners. Those who sinned against God. John 12, 32 and 33, Jesus said this, when I am lifted up from the earth, and you, John speaks in this way, Jesus, John records Jesus as speaking this way often. The way that Jesus would accomplish his Father's will was that he would be exalted, he would be lifted up, and, and yet when you come here, you finally see exactly what he means by it. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, he said. But he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It was going to be that cross that raised him up. And that's where the, the onlookers would come. And they would see a man who had his beard plucked out of his face and whatever kind of rash you've ever had from shaving men, you can imagine how much his face was a bloody mess. Thorns, probably from the date palm, which can grow three inches long, were shoved into his skull and the beatings and whippings and the torture and all of that. And here he is displayed on this cross for everybody to come and the Bible says in Psalm 22 and another prophecy that they would wag their heads at him because he looks so shameful. They would wag their heads. They would say, who is this monstrous person? Do you wonder at the wisdom and prosperity of Christ? To ask just how this advances mankind is a good question. How would this advance your estate in this world? What does this mean for you and why do you benefit from someone's suffering in this way? First, and this will be quick, his suffering was an offering for the guilt, the sin guilt of others. The disfigurement of our Lord is representative of the disfigurement of sin upon mankind. But Jesus actually became the epitome of sin on the cross. He became a curse for us, the Bible says. The sin was ours, and he bore it. Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is what Christ was doing. This is how he fulfilled the word of the Lord. He became an offering for guilt, for sin. He 
shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this speaks of the removal of our sin before God. That's how this advances us. And nothing could advance us to a greater degree. 1 Peter 2.24 speaks of Christ, and he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah 53.5 when he says, By his wounds you have been healed. By the marring, by the disfigurement, by the taking on of himself, our guilt, we are healed. Christ's sufferings on the cross regards the removal of our sin, guilt, before God. And second, his righteousness is also counted to us. In 53.11, Isaiah 53.11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. His knowledge, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, that's the servant, he is righteous, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He will justify many by his own righteousness. Not only has Christ borne our iniquities in his own body on the cross, he being righteous himself makes many to be accounted righteous. That is, this is not merely a negation. It's not merely God in the day of judgment saying, okay, you're forgiven for your sin, but this is also in the plan of God and in, in the offering up of Christ the servant, the means whereby God doesn't just say you're forgiven, he says you're righteous. You're justified. The righteousness of God comes to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.22 says. And this comes to all who believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 maybe says it more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture. For our sake, He, the Father, made Him, the Son, the Servant, to become sin, to be made sin, Him who knew no sin. That is Jesus, the servant, so that in him, the servant, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And we'll consider what is the third benefit next week. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, do you exalt him in your hearts? Do you exalt him in your hearts because of what we read? Knowing that it was your sin that he bore, knowing that it was your disfigurement that he bore, knowing that he became something other almost than human there on the cross to our eyes, that which we deserved in our place. The songwriter says he emptied himself of all but love to do that for us? Do you know by faith that you as a sinner could truly advance in this world? Do you know that you could truly advance in this world, but not in this world alone, in the world to come? And not by advancing materially or by any sort of health necessarily or great scientific breakthrough, but advancing because he has made peace with God for you. And there is no condemnation for you any longer because his body was broken.
His blood was shed. Will you receive him humbly by faith alone? This is the only way that sinners will be exalted is when we humble ourselves and boast only in him who humbled himself for us and for our salvation. Will you with joy partake then and faith partake of these elements as are presented here before us that represent our Lord in his suffering and who is indeed present as he promised to be with us by the abiding Holy Spirit.